Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Guardian. Current estimates suggest that there are 7.5 billion people living on Earth and using its resources. Recent reports suggest that if we are to reduce the negative impacts that humanity has on the planet, we need governments around the world to place environmental issues high on the political agenda. But alongside politicians, people from the world of technology are also stepping in to do what they can to help redress the balance between humanity and the natural world. Green technology also known as environmental or clean technology, applies environmental sciences to the development of technologies that can help mitigate the effects of human activity on the environment. This covers a broad range of technologies, from those that monitor and model the natural world and its resources, to those that more actively aid parts of the environment. In this highly technological world, more and more scientists are looking at how to use technology for environmental purposes. Physics allows us to scale the robot down and still be energy efficient. Let's say applications like robotic pollination is something we have in our minds. From solar-powered charging stations and even entire roads that replenish the batteries in electric vehicles, to robots that swim around rivers, lakes and even the ocean, cleaning up waste. Humans are developing increasingly novel ways to tackle the environmental problems we've caused. But are we wasting time and money on experimental technology that might not make it past the finish line? And can the use of technology at a grassroots level actually increase awareness and influence those with the power to make real change? The public has a lot of power to press people in power to make actions to solve climate change. And right now, it seems like that public perception is, is not really there. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this is Chips with Everything. We call it the demo effect, so whenever you have to show something to people that come, uh, nothing ever works. So. Oh, really? That's so funny. This week, we hear from two scientists hoping to address environmental issues by harnessing technology in very different ways. My first guest creates machines that at a first glance sound like the kind of nightmare fuel you might find in an episode of the science fiction show Black Mirror. My name is uh, Matej Karasek. Uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the uh, Delft University of Technology, uh, where we yeah, develop drones of different sizes, from small pocket-sized drones to large uh, uh, two-meter wingspan flying wings. Matej's robots drew attention recently because of their resemblance to flying insects. 
so I started by asking to what extent he and his team had taken inspiration from the natural world in their design of these miniature drones. So uh, our robots are inspired by flying insects. Uh, and um, the basic inspiration is that we do not have any propellers on the robot, but we have wings that flap, they flap back and forth. And uh, this is what creates a lift force that carries the robot in the air. Um, but the, the wings, they actually can, each wing can move independently, uh, following different uh, motion patterns, uh, like uh, insects do that. And this is what allows the robot to steer itself. So the robot can rotate around uh, any of its body axis and then it can fly in any directions. And this is, uh, um, the inspiration comes from, from flying insects. Do you feel like technology offers a way to improve upon nature then? So you can take some ideas from nature, but then make them better or tweak them so that they work better? Um, sometimes that's possible. Uh, it's not necessarily making things better, but it's more um, making them work with, let's say, the, the pieces that we have uh, at hand as, as uh, uh, engineers, basically. So, uh, for example, in, in when we want to fly, insects, they have these uh, amazing, powerful muscles, which can, you know, contract and uh, very, very quickly and with a lot of power, but we don't have such muscles. So instead we have uh, motors that, that are spinning and we have to find a way around that. So there are some limits we, we have. Now, your Delphi robot has garnered particular interest. What exactly is it and why do you think it has got people so excited? So um, it's, it's a flying robot uh, that flies like insects. So um, basically it's just a body, central body, with four wings uh, extending in two on the right side and two on the left side. And when you see it flying, it really resembles uh, an insect. It is m larger, it is uh, 30 centimeter uh, in wingspan, so like a longer side of the A4 uh, sheet of paper. Um, but uh, the way it flies is uh, really similar to insects. Uh, so if you see it flying, it uh, just uh, yeah uh, resembles like a flying animal. Goodness, I can imagine that some people seeing a 30 centimeter insect-like robot would probably be quite scared. That's kind of like what insects used to look like at the time of the dinosaurs. Definitely, uh, there used to be dragonflies that were even larger than this. And um, um, today we also have uh, birds that uh, are of those sizes. Uh, hummingbirds uh, are a bit smaller, but they can also hover. So that means uh, hanging the air like our robot. So there are still animals that uh, resemble um, in terms of size. So what use do you see the Delphi having? What kinds of problems does it solve? So um, what is new about the, the, the newest Delphi is that um, it has no, no tail, so the control is integrated in its wings, and uh, this allows to, um, be very, uh, it to be very agile. So we can, we can hover at a spot, we can fly in any direction, and we can uh, start flying forward in a split of a second and reach maximum speed of uh, 25 kilometers per hour. And uh, this this uh, agility is is uh, what is what is so um, nice about it because first of all we can fly outdoors in the presence of uh, wind gusts, uh, but also uh, it allowed us to study insects which which uh, already have this uh, agility and our our robot was the first to uh, approach this agility while being programmable. So you said that they are able to fly around in the wind, for instance, but how do they deal with other elements of nature like rain? So, so currently our uh, robots are designed for indoors, so they are just not protecting in any way uh, to rain. But in principle, it is possible to design it such that it can also fly in, in the wet uh, conditions. 
but it would mean uh, some extra weight, so uh, that would decrease the flight time. Another improvement you'll obviously need to work on is the battery life, right? Because I've heard that the battery life is quite short. Yeah, so currently we can fly around five to six minutes uh, when we hover, so hanging the air at one spot. Um, But it is a bit more if we fly forward because that's where the robot is more energy efficient because it's also gliding through the air and it gives us some extra lift force. Um, And uh, of course, uh, we would like to extend this. Uh, We can partly um, improve that by using uh, better batteries that would that should be available in future uh, but we're also looking uh, at the efficiency of the flapping wings uh, and um, that comes hand in hand with the actuation so if we have actuators which are more efficient we can also fly for longer complex robots like matty's have several limitations due to their hardware like size and battery life but their software offers some incredible opportunities incorporating perception and real-time identification of obstacles to allow the robots to learn in a dynamic environment and identify solutions mid-flight. I wanted to know more about how robots like the Delphi could be taught to behave autonomously. First of all, we have to add them some sensors, uh, such as uh, small cameras, uh, that allow them to, to see the environment around them. Then there are different techniques how to, how to let's say process this this image to figure out if what we are seeing is an obstacle or if it's a, for example an opening through which we can uh, fly through and that's basically an ongoing research we're we're doing right now how to use the camera images for uh, autonomous flight um, one of our previous uh, Delphi robots. Uh, which was uh, less agile, uh, would already carry a stereovision system, so actually two cameras that work like human eyes. So not only you can see around yourself, but you can also see the distances or estimate distances of the things you see. And uh, with this system, the robot was able to fly around uh, a room or office environment and explore that, uh, flying around basically semi-randomly, but uh, exploring the whole area. So what kinds of things would you use it for? So the robot can, uh, for example, carry a camera. Uh, So it can perform tasks like a remote inspection when you need to fly uh, somewhere to a location which is difficult to reach for a human. And uh, the advantage of our robot is, uh, apart from its agility, uh, it is um, very lightweight and uh, very safe around humans. So it can fly in our uh, natural environment Unlike uh, robots with propellers that uh, spin very fast and then they can uh, cause some uh, harms to us. The wings uh, that flap, they they move back and forth and bounce off uh, objects. So in this way, flapping wings are much safer. So is it true that you could use this robot, though, to do the job of insects like bees? Um, So we cannot do it at the moment, um, but uh, it is one of the possible applications for future Of course, uh, there remain many, let's say, challenges to be solved. Our robots are now, as I mentioned, uh, quite large. If you would like to replace all the bees, then Mm. we don't want to have these big robots flying around. (laughs) Uh, But uh, um, we're thinking of um, what the applications of such a robot could be. And because the uh, physics uh, allows us to scale the robot down and still be energy efficient, let's say applications like robotic pollination uh, is, is something we have in our minds. So assuming that it is theoretically possible to make these robots smaller and autonomous and able to pollinate plants, how far do you think we are from a future where we have robotic insects pollinating our plants? Um, so I think f- if we would go in this direction, the first step would be to uh, try this out in greenhouses, which is still kind of a, let's say, uh, environment which is uh, controlled. 
in terms of uh, wind and uh, elements. And uh, I think uh, it is realistic to say within five to ten years we could have uh, robots flying there. Wow. And how small are you going to be able to make them? Well, currently we think uh, something like palm-sized robots, uh, that's what is achievable with current technology. Uh, Of course, we would like to go smaller and smaller, but there we're really hitting limits, especially in actuation. So as I mentioned, we have motors that spin, but we would like to have uh, actuators that work more like muscles, so that contract. But so far, we don't have a good alternative to animal muscles. Do you think that Some people might argue that the kind of time and effort and money that you and other teams are putting into this kind of thing could be better spent maybe helping to save the insects instead of finding ways to replace them. Yeah, so um, we actually think that's the way to go. We should uh, figure out why the insects are uh, dying and we should just try to save them. But of course, um, our work um, has also other applications. So um, the money spent on our research uh, is not uh, money that could also go to, let's say, say research of why bees are dying out. Uh, We see other applications for our technology like uh, search and rescue mission after missions after earthquakes where the robots would fly around uh, buildings, collapsed buildings, uh, through small cracks in the in the walls and search for survivors, for example. Mm, awesome. Do you think that these kinds of mini flying drones that you're making will be prevalent in future? Do you think that future generations will just see it as completely normal to have robots flying around? Yeah, yes, I think so. Already now we see that that Kids are adapting very quickly to, to our technology. And uh, I think flying robots will just become a, a part of our daily lives. So perhaps one day we'll live in a future in which drones like Delphi are commonplace. Monitoring natural environments, working in greenhouses, or maybe even one day spreading tree seeds from the sky to fight deforestation. But in the meantime, how else are scientists harnessing technology in the hope of making a difference to the environment? You know, if a politician proposes a law, you can test that out in the game and see how it impacts the civilization. And that's just kind of mind-blowing to me, that you could really use games like this to to do a lot of good. Find out after the break, as we join a scientist-slash-video game player trying to fight the big fight from the grassroots level. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, 
talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. You've probably heard of the video game Fortnite. Its free-to-play mode, Fortnite Battle Royale, has up to 100 players parachute onto an island and fight to be the last person standing as the safe environment steadily shrinks around them. So one of them is something called the Arctic Boreal Vulnerability Experiment, which is a real mouthful. Yeah, Pardis Prime, you can ask us questions in climate chat here. So we have another viewer just joined us in Twitch chat. This is the audio from a Twitch channel called Climate Fortnite. Twitch is a very popular website on which people stream footage of themselves playing video games, while others tune in to watch and maybe comment in a live text chat that runs alongside the stream. Climate Fortnite is a channel using this medium to teach video game fans about climate change. When you burn fossil fuels, whether it's oil or gas or coal, there's no carbon-14 left in that. Right. So, if so I... One of these voices is that of NASA Earth scientist Peter Griffith, who talked about the carbon cycle and warming in the Arctic, while the channel owner fought for survival on the Fortnite island. OK, is everything set up on your end? We ready to go? Uh, I think so. We are, yeah, we're rolling. The latter, the man behind Climate Fortnite, is my second guest for today's episode. I'm Henri Drake. I'm a climate science PhD student at MIT and also the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. I wondered where Henri initially got the idea to combine gaming and climate change communication. So it started as a program to combine the vast interest in the video game Fortnite and also climate communication, so communicating about the problem of climate change and how to solve it. And uh, basically, I play video games while live streaming on a website, and we have viewers who watch live and they are able to interact via a text chat. And then we talk about various climate change topics uh, on that platform. Where did the idea originally come from? So I I can't take credit for the original idea. It actually was inspired by Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist at Texas Tech University. And um, she basically had this Twitter post that went kind of viral where she commented on the fact that she had this climate science webinar Uh, basically a lecture about climate science that only had about a 1,000 views on YouTube. And meanwhile, her son, uh, who's a 10-year-old kid, uploaded a video about Fortnite to YouTube, and that had gotten tens of thousands of views basically overnight. And so someone commented uh, a follow-up question saying, hey, why don't we combine these two things and, and see if we can get more views that way? So if people tune into one of these streams to watch you play Fortnite, what kind of topics can they expect to hear you discuss? So I'll give an example of last night. So last night, the two main topics we discussed were Antarctica and the role of Antarctica in the climate system. So that was inspired by a talk I'd seen earlier in the day. And then another topic we talked about was how, you know, an individual person can reduce their carbon emissions um, and reduce their impact on climate. While it's obviously important to get more people to pay attention to climate change and teach them what they can do to help, I was curious about the reach of Henri's project. Fortnite is an incredibly popular game. Nearly 80 million people played it in August of this year. But is Henri's message limited to a niche demographic? Who else has he seen take an interest? 
it's a little bit hard to tell because people can just pick any anonymous username. Um, and so sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what my demographic is. And the people who interact the most seem to be people around my age who have some kind of background in science, but not necessarily in climate science and are really curious. Um, but I also get a lot of comments and messages from children, usually middle school or high school age, um, who are kind of nervous about climate change and want to learn more. So, yeah, it's kind of exactly the audience I was hoping for. Yeah, I get the sense that the demographic for Twitch is mostly younger. Is that a demographic that you particularly need to address with talk about climate change? Yeah, for sure. So I think, at least to me, it seems that most of the communication about climate change comes through um, various newspaper articles or podcasts or, or even uh, the scientific literature. And it seems like the audience for those media are probably skew towards the older side. Um, and there are these wildly popular platforms like Twitch and YouTube, which have literally millions of you know, children and, and millennials who are watching. Um, and there really isn't much content about climate change, at least not popular content. Um, so I've been hoping to fill that niche. One of the problems you obviously have to contend with is climate change skeptics. Have you found that there are skeptics online as well? Yeah, it honestly hasn't been as much as I expected. So um, basically anytime, you know, we post anything about climate change, whether it's, uh, you know, an article that, that makes headlines or, um, you know, a popular forum online, there's always some skeptics who come. Um, and usually they give sort of the same tired arguments. So it's pretty easy at this point for me to dismiss them. Um, so sometimes if a question comes up in the stream where it's a skeptic, uh, you know, asking a question, I'll just repeat the like one liner that basically dismisses their comment. <laughs> um, other times people are a little more combative or just, you know, straight up insult me or something. And then I'll just ban them or silence them from the chat. Um, and I've had a few people who um, they're sort of on the border of being skeptics and also deniers. Um, and so there I try and entertain them for a little bit. And, you know, if they're, if they're honestly curious about the science, I'll explain it. Um, but if they just reject the evidence and say, oh, you know, climate scientists just tamper with the data, um, then usually I just, I just give up at some point. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> What's the larger response been to the project? So the, the initial response was from mostly the scientific community. So other scientists uh, were really supportive of the project and I think saw immediately the value that it could have. And only recently has sort of the larger gaming community started to appreciate the project, I think. So we've been getting a lot more followers in the, in the past week. And I had a stream last night where I, I played for two hours. And over the course of those two hours, I got about 100 new followers. Uh, and we had an average of maybe 30 viewers, um, which to me is really exciting because that's basically the size of a you know normal high school or, or university classroom. So already I'm getting a pretty good audience and, and it's only growing. Given the name of the channel, it's perhaps unsurprising that Henri's audience currently seems to consist mainly of people with an existing interest in issues around climate change. While his reach is expanding wider into the gaming community, I wondered if Henri thought that his approach would be effective in garnering any real attention or triggering any real change beyond these circles. So I think the couple of very active people who, who comment. So I have a few people who've actually joined the stream now 
um, and they've sort of become partners with the project, but they aren't climate scientists themselves. And they're already fairly knowledgeable about the subject. So to them, you know, there might be just marginal gains in terms of um, knowledge and communication. But I get the sense that most of the other viewers, they're, they're honestly pretty anxious about the climate change problem. I mean, I've gotten a lot of questions just in the past week about this new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which sort of had a, a pretty dire forecast for the next 20 or 30 years. And I think people are honestly a little bit scared and, and they want to they want to get, you know, not just comfort, but also, um, you know, they want to get the actual facts from an expert. And I think that the climate science community is not obviously accessible to especially young people who have questions. I mean, if someone's from a small town in, in say, Kansas, they can't just go up to, you know, a climate science and ask them a question. But online, you can do that. And so um, I do think that there's a lot of people who really don't know what to make of climate change. They see these scary headlines. They just don't know if it's true or, or if we're all going to die or if we're going to be okay. And I feel like, honestly, most of my viewers fall in that category. What about the, the audience that you're able to reach with this? Is, the, is it limited, the scope, or could you maybe end up speaking to millions if this goes well? Yeah, so I think that is possible if I play my cards right. So one of the things that I'm really interested in doing is partnering up with other video game streamers, and some of them are absurdly popular. I mean, they have literally millions of daily viewers who watch them every single day. Um, so you might have heard the name Ninja, who's the most popular Fortnite streamer in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, at some point, I'd like to reach out to you know, him, but also other uh, slightly lesser-known streamers. And eventually, I think it'd be really cool to have these basically video game celebrities, um, you know, engaging with me about climate change topics and seeing if we can, if we can spread knowledge and, and also basically the, the desire for climate action among a, a wider audience. Do you think you'll be able to reach anyone who can actually do anything about climate change? So politicians, maybe? Yeah. So I think, you know, the way that you get to politicians is not by actually having them watch the stream. It's by having their constituents watch the stream and pressure them to, to act. And I think that's really what I want to get out of this is the public has a lot of power to press people in power to make actions to solve climate change. And right now, it seems like that public perception is, is not really there. Um, so that, that's really the way that I want to impact the world is by, by getting the public really excited about solving climate change and, you know, and getting those ideas out there to the politicians. So with the popularity of Fortnite there's obviously an argument to be made that video games are a good medium for reaching a wide audience. What other movements have you seen within the games industry to tackle issues like climate change? Yeah, so the the one I'm actually most excited right now is, so the project started by streaming Fortnite, but we're actually moving to also playing this new game called Eco, which is in early access currently. But the game, basically, the whole point of the game is to solve climate change. So the premise is that you start on this planet with no resources and you have 30 days before a meteor is going to strike the planet. And you have to develop your civilization to shoot down the meteor before it hits you. But you also have to balance that with environmental impacts and climate change. So every time you do something like drive your car around the planet, you emit carbon dioxide and that is going to warm the planet. And you can actually lose the game uh, if you impact the planet too much. So I think you can really use games to not just 
you know, start the conversation, but actually teach people things about how the climate system works. And that's, that's, the, that's the direction I'm most excited about. Do you think this game, Eco, will actually teach people enough to change their behavior? Yeah, I, I definitely think it could. So one of the really exciting things about the game is that it really has a lot of details built into it. So, for example, uh, last night we just switched over from using coal and wood to power our uh, some of our machines to using a windmill. And, um, you know, there are immediate impacts in the game where the air pollution improves. Um, and, you know, there, we just started the game, but there's so much you can do with this. You can, you can even pass laws in the game so you can actually test out how, you know, if a politician proposes a law, you can test that out in the game and see how it impact uh, the civilization. And that's just kind of mind-blowing to me that you could really use games like this to, to do a lot of good. Playing devil's advocate, I guess, or taking a more skeptical view, how much do you think people actually listen to these messages? Yeah, so it's hard to tell. I think that the way I can get feedback is people asking questions. And a lot of people, after they ask the question and I answer, they actually respond and they'll say, thank you for explaining that, or wow, I've learned a lot today, and and things like that. So I I think that people are actually getting something out of this. And... um, I have to say that when when I first started the project, I was playing Fortnite and the conversations were not very high quality. I would get distracted by dying in the game and things like that. But (laughs) since I've switched to eco and now that the game really is a slower pace and it has more to do with climate change, I think people get a lot more out of the conversations. Um, And and I think we're people are really getting a lot out of out of the stream. With recent reports that only a few companies, some say 100, some say 50, are responsible for around 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, it's clear that in order to mitigate the effects of climate change, significant effort is required at the governmental level. But that doesn't mean that individuals have no power, whether that's technologists like Matty Karasek experimenting with solutions for some of the problems we've caused, or climate scientists like Henri Drake recognizing that some audiences might be better reached in the online communities in which they already like to spend their time. In the face of such a truly global problem, it's up to each of us to use what particular tools we have. I'd like to thank Matty and Henri for joining us on the show this week. You can watch the Dell Fly in action by following the link in the episode description on The Guardian website, where you can also find out more about Henri's project Climate Fortnight. What game would you like to see a climate scientist try to play and talk over at the same time? Let me know by emailing chipspodcast at theguardian.com. This episode of Chips With Everything was produced by Eva Krisiak. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. The Guardian. 